Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. I remember sitting in on a masterclass one summer where my friend was playing for the Russian cellist Natalia Gutman. After he finished playing, she smiled, kind of chuckled a bit, and said a few words to her translator, who explained that she thought he was playing his instrument completely wrong, but because he sounded so great, he should just keep doing what he was doing, and she had no desire to change anything about his technique. Indeed, when you think about your favorite musicians, or athletes for that matter, don't they all have a unique physical style and approach to playing? Like if you could somehow turn Glenn Gould and Martha Argerich videos into stick figure recordings, for instance, it would still be pretty easy to identify which one was which. Research on athletes suggests that not only do different individuals have different approaches to movement that enable them to achieve the same results, there's actually a surprising amount of variability from one repetition to the next, even for the same athlete meaning they may never use the same exact combination of joint angles and force and acceleration from one repetition to the next, yet still consistently make the basket, hit the desired target, or throw the ball to the same point. In much the same way that you could probably produce a consistently beautiful sound, note after note, but without using the same exact combination of bow weight, speed, point of contact, and number of bow hairs making contact with the string from one note to the next. And this flexibility turns out to be quite important, because once you leave the practice room, you inevitably have to adapt to never-before-encountered situations on the fly, whether it's the demands of an eccentric conductor, a hall's quirky acoustics, or your excitable cellist's spontaneous decision to take the fast movement a few clicks faster than they did in rehearsal. But this flexibility, and the variability in mechanics that you see from one performer to the next, it's not really reflected in the traditional approach to learning, and that we all typically start out by learning how to perform a new skill in a very specific, prescribed, textbook kind of way, as if there's only one single correct way to perform the skill, and the key to success is lots and lots of perfect repetitions. But if we all eventually end up deviating from this hypothetical ideal in some way or another, is the traditional here's the correct way to perform this skill, so do a bunch of repetitions until you get it right, approach the best way to learn a skill? Or is there an alternative that might be better? 
In the late 1990s, German motor learning researcher Wolfgang Schulhorn proposed something new, an approach that he called differential learning, where instead of focusing on super consistent, so-called perfect repetitions of a skill with minimal variability from one repetition to the next, the idea was to encourage the learner to maximize variability from one repetition to the next, and to explore a much broader range of possible movement patterns, with little repetition of any one variation, in order to intuitively discover what works best for them. To basically allow the learner to do things in all the wrong ways as well as the right ways. Like practicing a penalty kick in soccer with one eye closed, or dribbling with your hands crossed over your chest. Or for a young violent student, for instance, the traditional approach might be to encourage the student to keep the bow perfectly straight and follow a consistent path between the bridge and fingerboard and every note. Whereas the differential learning approach might be to encourage them to play close to the bridge or over the fingerboard or where the bow drifts further away from the bridge as they get closer to the tip or with some sort of funky bow grip or while standing on one leg or with both eyes closed and so on. Which all sounds kind of fun, but what's the point of this? What benefits does the differential approach have over the traditional way? Well, a group of 54 children, aged 6 to 9 years old, were recruited to participate in a toothbrushing study, where over the course of 15 days, a third of the students continued brushing like normal, the control group, while another third were given some training in the correct brushing technique and supervised by a dentist, which was the traditional learning group. And the final third were given the same training and a toothbrushing exercise to do selected randomly from a list, the differential learning group. These exercises ranged from brushing their teeth with a two kilogram weight on their wrist, or while sitting on an exercise ball, or with one eye covered, or with soccer goalie gloves on, or using their non-dominant hand, or with both hands at once, or in a different sequence than they were originally taught. And then they followed up with the kids at day 21, day 42, and day 63 to see if there were any changes to the buildup of plaque and propensity for bleeding compared with day one. And was there any difference between the groups? Indeed, there were. The differential learning group had the lowest plaque scores at each of the follow-up measurements and had significantly better results in both areas of dental health as compared with the control and traditional learning groups. Okay, so these crazy variations might have helped with first and second graders, but maybe this simply turned toothbrushing into more of a game, increasing their engagement in the task. Is there any evidence that this helps with adults doing something a little more serious? Well, sticking with the theme of dental health, a study of third-year dental surgery students found similar results. In this study, 32 students were either taught how to prepare a partial crown through a traditional learning approach or through a differential learning approach. The traditional approach involved a video demonstration, verbal instructions, lots of practice and repetition of the correct procedure, and verbal and written feedback by supervisors throughout learning whereas the differential approach involved the same video demonstration and verbal instructions, but no expert feedback, and a series of varying practice challenges instead of normal, perfect practice and repetition. 
Like in the toothbrushing study, these variations included preparing the partial crown with a weight on one's dominant hand, or while using the non-dominant hand to perform the procedure, or with glasses reversed, or with the practice dummy head continuously moving, or with the dummy's mouth partially closed, or while wearing earplugs, or with the dominant hand attached to a resistant band, and so forth. And did one approach work any better than the other? Well, the students were tested twice on their ability to prepare a partial crown. The first test took place on the day right after they completed their training, and the second test took place 20 weeks later. At the first test, the differential learning group did perform slightly better as 68% of the students passed the exam, while 54.3% of the traditional learning students also passed. But this difference wasn't statistically significant, so when it comes to performance right after training, there may not be that much of a difference between the two learning methods. But when it was time for the second test, which is a better indicator of how much of what they learned in their training actually stuck, it was a very different story. When tested several months after their training, the differential learning group performed way better, with a passing rate of 68.8% compared to 18.9% for the traditional learning group. So what can we learn from these studies? Well, before we get into takeaways, it's important to note that this is still a developing area of motor learning. There's a lot of intriguing research here with some really cool findings in various sports, and a recent meta-analysis of the studies in this area did find that differential learning shows promise. But there are still a lot of questions that researchers are still exploring. For instance, it's not really clear how much variability or what type of variability is best and when. Schulhorn has suggested that those with less experience, whose movements are still naturally pretty variable, would probably do best with smaller or less extreme types of variation at first, while those who are more skilled and already performing at a pretty high and consistent level may benefit from exploring a broader and more extreme range of variations. For me, there are a few main takeaways. For one, I think it's another reminder that the practice strategies that lead to the fastest improvements right this second don't necessarily translate into better learning, retention, and performance tomorrow. But even more than that, I like that the differential learning approach seems to destigmatize mistakes in the learning process. Like, instead of getting all tense and stressed out and worrying about whether you are playing correctly or not, if the goal is to try a wide range of possibilities to discover what works best for you, there is no such thing as a mistake. There are simply approaches that work better and approaches that work less well, and exploring them all is part of the self-discovery process. You can find links to this week's study and other resources at bulletproofmusician.com blog. And if you found the episode helpful, please share it with a friend or practice buddy who you think might also enjoy experimenting with this during the coming week.